Please pray with me. Lord God, I just pray this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. How many of you here this morning are familiar with Murphy's Law? Murphy's Law. Murphy's Law essentially says anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Some of you may feel like that your life is a billboard for Murphy's Law. That's how you experience life. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Well, Murphy's inspired any number of other laws describing those areas of life where there seems to be forces working against us. There are laws that govern bureaucracies. For instance, somewhere right now a committee is deciding your future and you weren't invited. Or when all is said and done, more will be said than done. There are laws that underscore the absurdity and the unfairness of life. For example, negative expectations yield negative results. Positive expectations yield negative results. Or there's J. Paul Getty's famous line, the meek shall inherit the earth, but not its mineral rights. Well, there's a website that's capitalized on the cynical humor of of Murphy's Law and other laws like it. If you go to www.despair.com, you'll find posters with demotivational slogans Listen to some of these slogans. Customer disservice, because we're not satisfied until you're not satisfied. Or strife, as long as we have each other, we'll never run out of problems. Risks, if you never try anything new, you'll miss out on many of life's great disappointments. Fear. Until you have the courage to lose sight of the shore, you will not know the terror of being forever lost at sea. Despair. It's always darkest just before it goes pitch black. Well, these laws and slogans point to one of the deep mysteries of life. There's something very wrong in the world. There's something that seems to be working against us, wreaking havoc on our dreams, our hopes, our best efforts. A cursory glance at the daily news headlines tells us that all is not right with the world. All over the world, people have to deal with economic woes, scandal and business and government, violence, strife, conflict. The murder of these 10 medical missionaries in Afghanistan is a clear indication that something is very wrong in the world. Add to these natural disasters, famine, disease, and sickness, and there appears to be no end to human suffering. Many of you here this morning are all too familiar with suffering. You've experienced it firsthand 
those who have lost loved ones to an accident or illness, a spouse, a parent, a child, a dear friend, those who have been physically or sexually abused, those who have divorced or who are enduring a bad marriage or whose spouse simply abandoned them, those suffering with a crippling, debilitating, or painful physical condition, those whose children have rejected them and walked away in rebellion. How do we make sense of these kinds of things? We do the best we can to cope, but we know it's not the way things should be. What hope do we have when there's something terribly wrong deep down in the world? This is the second week in a three-week series from Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 is all about God's love for us in the giving of his Holy Spirit. And it's about what it means to live life in the power of the Holy Spirit. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 17 and we talked about how the Holy Spirit is God's gracious gift to believers to enable us to live in victory over sin and death. And these verses tell us that the Spirit within us frees us from sin's condemnation and control and assures us that we have been adopted as God's children. This is, this is wonderful news. It's great news. And it's a clear indication of just how much God loves us. But in verse 17, just before we get to our passage for today, Paul gives us a strong hint that living life in the Spirit doesn't mean that we'll be free from trouble. Verses 15 to 17 say, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, and here it is, here's the hint, if in fact we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. If, in fact, we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Well, what in the world does that mean? And what does suffering have to do with our adoption as children of God? Paul understands that suffering is an inherent part of living in a broken, fallen world. He's also keenly aware that suffering can easily become a stumbling block to our faith. I mean, if we're honest, who among us hasn't asked the, the why questions when it comes to suffering? Why is there so much suffering in the world? Why do some people or groups seem to suffer so much more than others? Why does suffering seem to be so unevenly distributed? Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Or why do, you, why do the bad people get it so easy sometimes? Where is God in the midst of suffering? Well, you know what? There's absolutely nothing wrong with asking those questions. I think it's actually healthy to ask the questions. And God is certainly big enough to handle any questions that we might have. The trouble is, fallen human nature being what it is, there's no shortage of incorrect or at least incomplete answers to the problem of our suffering. Suffering is a sign of God's disfavor. Or suffering is caused by sin in my life. 
or suffering is caused by my lack of faith. Well, it's entirely possible that there's a, a, a kernel of truth in each of those statements depending on the given situation. But the fact of the matter is such views tend to create false guilt. They often don't line up with the realities of the situation and they undermine Paul's entire declaration that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Paul wants us to be clear that just because the Spirit enables us to be free from sin's condemnation and control and assures us that we are God's adopted children, that doesn't mean that we won't experience suffering. In fact, Paul seems to indicate just the opposite, that suffering plays an important role in our adoption as God's children. So rather than trying to explain it away, Paul in this passage put suffering into proper perspective for us. He encourages us to keep the long view of the future in mind. He says in verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed in us. See, we suffer now because we live in a broken, fallen, sinful world. But it won't always be that way. That's the good news. You see, if God could raise Christ from the dead, he will surely conquer all of the suffering in the world. We find everywhere on the pages of the New Testament the conviction that suffering will not have the last word. And Paul tells us that the glory that is to come at the renewal of all things will far outweigh our present sufferings. In the meantime, that's where we live, isn't it? In the meantime, we're caught in between creation and new creation. We've been given the Spirit and our adoption is assured, but it is not yet completed. God's kingdom has already come in and through the person of Jesus Christ. We who have been given the Spirit are citizens of that kingdom. We've died with Christ and we've been raised with him. And we are here and now living out our salvation. But it will not be fully realized until the second coming of Christ and the renewal of all things. Paul goes on to to talk about this and explain it further in verses 19 to 25. He says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly while we wait for adoption." the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now these verses make it clear to us that right now, the, the whole created order is all out of whack. All of creation is in bondage to death and decay. Many of us enjoy nature. 
We like the beauty of God's creation. And, and rightly so. Most of us, though, have also experienced the fallenness of the created order. Mosquito bites, chiggers, sunburns, poison ivy, rashes, bee stings, and so on and so forth. As one writer said, at the heart of nature, we find precisely the dilemma infecting our personal and corporate histories. The violent usually win, the good die young, disease is no respecter of persons, and the powerful joyfully exploit the weak. The wilderness is impressive on calendars, but its wild order is that for one to eat, another will die. Now that's a pretty far cry from Isaiah's vision, don't you think? Isaiah says in in chapter 11 of his book, the wolf shall live with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Someday, yes. But that's certainly not the case now, is it? So if we think that that by getting away to nature, we can somehow escape chaos, somehow escape suffering, I'm afraid we're... We're going to be disappointed. See, all of creation is groaning. All of creation is is subject to frustration, subject to the decay and death of the fallen order of things. But you know what? Paul and the early Christians believed that God was going to redeem and restore his creation. Not not just Christians alone, but, but the whole created order as well. N.T. Wright puts it this way in his book, Surprised by Hope. He says, creation is in slavery at the moment. God's design was to rule creation in life-giving wisdom through his image-bearing human creatures. But this was always a promise for the future, a promise that one day the true human being, the image of God himself, God's incarnate son, would come to lead the human race into their true identity. Meanwhile, the creation was subjected to futility, to transience and decay, until the time when God's children are glorified, when what happened to Jesus at Easter happens to all Jesus' people. The whole creation is on tiptoe with expectation, longing for the day when God's children are revealed, when their resurrection will herald its own new life. Right now, we suffer because we're caught between creation and the new creation. Paul uses the image of labor pains. Moms, you can relate to that. Guys, I'm sure we can only imagine. Like the young father-to-be who was pacing back and forth and wringing his hands in agony, fearful and anxious while his wife was in labor. Finally, the nurse poked her head into the waiting room and said, Sir, you have a little girl. And he dropped his hands and became limp and said, Oh, how I thank God she's a little girl. She'll never have to go through the awful agony that I've had tonight. I think he's missing something there. 
Paul uses this picture of labor pains to show us that God uses the pain we experience to bring about new life. Those who live by faith that God keeps his promises believe that that the suffering of this life is like the labor of a woman in childbirth and out of it will ultimately come a joy, a new life, grander than we could ever imagine. And that is the basic idea of verses 28 to 30 as well. God ultimately uses our suffering for our own good, namely to conform us to the image of his son. That's how verse 17 connects with verse 29. Verse 17, if in fact we suffer with him so that we also may be glorified with him, In verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. Contrary to some popular notions of the gospel, Christ did not suffer so that we would not suffer. Christ suffered so that we would become more like him. His ultimate goal is for us to become like Christ. And that's why Paul can say in Philippians, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection of the dead. God in Christ redeems our suffering and uses it to prepare us for his future glory. That's our hope, and that's the good news. Christ in you, the hope of glory. In the meantime, Paul says, while we're caught between creation and new creation, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. He says, in effect, that because we are weak, We don't know how to pray effectively, but that's okay because the Spirit is interceding for us with sighs too deep for words. Wow. Have you ever stopped to to contemplate the magnitude of this idea? Think about this for a minute. What a picture. In our moments of great weakness, in the midst of our great struggles, In times of our deep sorrow and agony, the Spirit of God himself is praying for us. The Spirit of God himself is is praying for us, interceding for us. What kind of amazing love is that? And what do we have to fear if God himself has taken up our cause in prayer? Isn't that an amazing thought? Verse 27 reads, And God, who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We may not always know how to pray. We may be praying for things that, that uh, aren't for our good, but, but the, God knows the mind of the Spirit, and the Spirit prays God's will for us. God knows our needs. He sees our suffering. He hears and he cares deeply. And we are secure in our relationship with Christ because of the presence of the indwelling spirit in our lives. 
That's why Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory about to be revealed to us. So what about us? Life is admittedly hard. We suffer. We have sorrow. We have pain. How do we handle our suffering? What hope do we have? I don't know what trials you may be facing or what pain or sorrow you may be experiencing this morning, but I just want to encourage you in your faith today. Hang in there. Wait patiently, as Paul says. A better day is coming. Regardless of your current situation, whatever it may be, suffering will not have the last word. We have the promise of living forever in the presence of God who will wipe away every tear from our eyes, of living where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for this old order of things will have passed away. We can endure our present sufferings because we know that God is working out his purpose in our lives, conforming us to the image of Christ and preparing us for our place in his kingdom. He loves us and he is not going to let us go quickly. Some of you will recognize the name Horatio Spafford. Horatio Spafford was a prominent lawyer and a devout Christian man. Spafford had invested heavily in real estate in Chicago, but the Chicago Fire of 1871 pretty much wiped out his holdings, and his son had died just shortly before that disaster. In 1873, he decided to take his wife Anna and their four daughters for an extended stay in Europe. But at the last minute, Spafford was delayed by business, so he sent his wife and his four daughters on ahead of them, promising that that he would join them in a few days. On November 22nd, 1873, the ship carrying his family was struck by another ship in the middle of the Atlantic. It sank in 12 minutes. Several days later, Horatio Spafford received a telegram from his wife, which read simply this, saved alone What should I do? His four daughters had drowned in the accident. After receiving Anna's telegram, Horatio immediately left Chicago to bring his wife home. And on the Atlantic crossing, the captain of his ship called Horatio to his cabin to tell him that they were were passing by the place where the ship had gone down and his four daughters had perished. And there, in the midst of his sorrow and pain, the the foundations of his world having been rocked to the core, he wrote those unforgettable words that have given solace to so many others in grief and pain. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well It is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. 
Horatio Spafford, in all his sorrow, knew that his pain was temporary and that ultimately God, not suffering, would have the last word. He suffered much, but ultimately he was able to say, it is well with my soul. What about us? Is that your testimony this morning? What hope do we have? How do we handle suffering? I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. God is in the process of transforming us into the image and likeness of Christ and he takes our sufferings and he redeems them in order to prepare us for future glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gift of your spirit. We thank you that We can be free from sin's condemnation and free from sin's control and that we can be assured of our adoption as your children. And yet we know, Lord, that our adoption is not complete, awaiting that final day when you return for your church to renew, to restore all things. Father, I pray that you would enable us through the indwelling spirit in our lives to wait patiently for that day. To wait in confident hope and expectation knowing that you are a God who always keeps his promises. And we'll give you thanks and praise even in the midst of suffering. In Jesus' name. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks to the Father and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and he gave thanks to the Father and he gave it to his disciples and said, drink from this, all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant shed for your sins and the sins of many. As often as you drink of it, do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, creator and sovereign of the universe, it is right that we should always and everywhere give you thanks and praise through Jesus Christ our Lord, who rose victorious from the dead and comforts us with the blessed hope of everlasting life. Blessed are you, Lord our God, because you loved the world so much you gave your only son Jesus to be our savior. He suffered and died for the sin of the world. You raised him from the dead that we too might have new life. He ascended to be with you in glory 
and by the power of your Holy Spirit is with us always. Therefore, in remembrance of all your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we ask you, Lord, to accept this our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, which we offer now in union with Christ's sacrifice for us as a living and holy surrender of ourselves. Send the power of your Holy Spirit on us, we pray, and on these gifts that the sharing of this bread and this cup may be for us a sharing in the body and blood of Christ, that we may be one body in him, cleansed by his blood, and that we may faithfully serve him in the world, looking forward to his coming in final victory. May we run with perseverance the race set before us so that we may receive the unfading crown of glory through your Son, Jesus Christ. Through him, with him, in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty God, now and forever. Amen.